The title for the talk this evening is The Risk of Being Present. And I wanted to start out with a, um, just reading you a short article that I found in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, last week. Um, it's called Surf the Net While Riding the Elevator. <laughs> They're coming up with all kinds of things. Elevator rides are notoriously unpleasant. <laughs> Crammed in a small box with a bunch of strangers, passengers typically stare at their shoes or do just about anything to avoid making eye contact. But if Michael DeFranza has his way, a trip to the fifth floor soon will become an entertaining and informative experience. DeFranz's two-year-old company is installing flat-paneled screens in elevator cars. The screens are linked to the internet and display news headlines, sports scores, local traffic and weather reports, and even restaurant reviews. The idea is to put elevator rides at ease and give them a natural place to rest their eyes. DeFranza said his flat-paneled elevator screens are a perfect fit for office towers and hotels. He says that a person in one of these buildings rides in an elevator about eight times a day for about 30 seconds each trip. He said every 10 seconds will deliver new information to the screen. <laughs> It did catch my attention. <laughs> I couldn't help but think that if somebody needed to be entertained for 30 seconds because they were feeling so unpleasant in themselves, something's really gone wrong. So. And, and this is where the market is, you know, so that we really won't have to be with ourselves. <laughs> because there's the potential for that, for that unpleasant experience, whether it's awkward or uncomfortable or just something we don't want to deal with. It's astonishing to me. So I want to talk about this risk that <laughs> 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 really does seem like, from this point of view, a huge risk to be alone and quiet, and, you know, in, in elevators, it's quiet. <laughs> and to be there for 30 seconds, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we usually talk about risk as some kind of action that we take that feels somewhat challenging or threatening. I looked up the word in the dictionary, and the de definition of risk is the possibility of suffering harm or loss. And the second definition was a factor, a thing, element, or course involving uncertain danger, a hazard, like being in the desert and being faced with the risk of rattlesnakes and uh, the heat and loss of water, you know, that kind of risk. But I'd like to propose this risk <laughs> of being in the present moment. Because to a certain extent, energetically, it actually feels like a risk, like it's, kind of, it's some kind of possibility of, of harm or loss. 
just to let go, to come more fully into the present moment. Being in the present moment means being awake in life. So risking being in the present moment means risking being awake, being awake, feeling that vitality in our lives. So tonight I'd like to explore what it is to be in the present moment, why we don't generally want to take that risk, and some of the consequences if we actually do. Because the truth is, and as we all know, not many people do want to take that risk. When we look around our world, not many people doing that. The quote from a great Tibetan master named Dilgo um, uh, Kense Rinpoche, who now passed away, he said that many are there in the world, but few are those who hear the Dharma or hear the truth. Few are those who begin the path. He said, of those who hear the Dharma, few are those who begin the path. Of those who begin the path, few are those who practice the teachings. Of those who practice the teachings, few are those who gain insight. And of those who gain insight, few attain to complete liberation. Because it's difficult <coughs> along the way difficult, we meet challenges in ourselves, and to, to stay on the path, to stay along the way, takes a great deal of commitment, and it takes a great deal of risk. I'm going to have some <laughs> buddy bothering me here. <laughs> Why is being present a risk? Let's look into this just to get, get some sense of why it feels this way. Being in the present is an act of renunciation. It's an act of renunciation. In a moment when we are truly present, we are letting go of all of our fixations about how things are and how things need to be because we are letting go for a moment into what is. We're letting go of our notions about the past, the present, the future, and we're turning our attention right to the actuality, the reality in that moment. We are witnessing in that moment what's going on. We're not caught up in all of our ideas and our notions and our concepts. We may witness that, but in that moment we are noticing that without that usual overlay of clinging and aversion that we're so often preoccupied with in our own minds. Our fixations, our fixations are made up of all our ideas, our demands, our expectations about how we want things to be, how we want things to go. You can see this in your own experience. And these fixations become so solid in our own minds. And when they become solid, we become confined, almost as if we're imprisoned by our own minds. And we feel, if we're in touch, if we're sensitive enough, the dissatisfaction of that, of that confinement, of that imprisonment. Usually we don't know 
how confining it is because we're so caught up. The glue for our fixations is our fear and our delusion. It's the delusion that I am holding this fabric of life together and that I need to hold it together. And if I don't, everything's going to fall apart. So we hold on. We just hold on for dear life. We strive to keep things comfortable, familiar, and safe because somehow that letting go feels so threatening to us. And we seem to repeat the same patterns again and again. And then we wonder why there's so little in our life that actually changes. Another quote. I don't know who this who said this, but insanity is repeating the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. You know, that's insanity. We just keep doing the same things again and again, but somehow expect there to be change. Doesn't work like that. This belief that I am responsible is so deeply conditioned in ourselves that somehow I have to do it. I have to bring about the change in myself. And certainly there is a certain responsibility. There is a certain amount of responsibility we have to take in our life, but I think we go too far with it. I think we go too far. We solidify the sense of ourself to such an extent that we obscure the possibility of viewing things in another way that maybe it isn't so much our responsibility to hold this all together. When I speak of letting go of our fixations, I'm really talking about renouncing what is known, what is familiar to us, and opening to more of what is unknown, what is not familiar to us, what we don't know, and that doesn't necessarily mean throwing out everything that we know, because we couldn't even if we wanted to, because we are creatures that learn over time, and this is what allows us to be healthy, functioning human beings in our life. We need to learn in our lives. So we're not talking about that kind of throwing out. But there's so much emphasis in our culture on education, on intellectual understanding, that the knowledge that, that we feel we have to accumulate. And certainly, this does lead to a deeper understanding of things and allows us to live in a more a balanced way in our lives. So all I'm wanting to point to is the possibility of rebalancing things so that there's not so much emphasis on all that knowledge. The problem is we become so identified with our own minds that these conceptual structures that we build in our minds, we don't see how these constructs themselves actually become the veil which clouds our vision, which keeps us from seeing clearly. There was another Tibetan <coughs> ma master named Trungpa Rinpoche who lived in 
Boulder, Colorado, who has also now passed away. And there's a story of when he was trying to get his students to expand their view, expand their vision. And so he held up a white sheet of paper, and on it he drew a, a V, kind of a V, upside, a, a, a V. And he just said to his students, well, what is this? And as the, the students looked at it, it looked like a bird, you know, maybe just a bird flying through the sky. And most of them agreed that's what it was. And he said, no, it's space with a bird flying through it. We so easily go to the particular and don't sense what's all around it. The mind narrows its vision and somehow gets caught, gets fixed in that view. When we begin to examine this way of holding, this way of construction, we start to let go a bit. We start to let go of these notions, let go of these constructs. But there's such a deep, deep conditioning to want to hold on. We see this, to keep our ideas so neatly packaged in order to feel a certain security, in order to keep things under control until it just doesn't work anymore. There's a story that the Buddha told in one of his discourses about a man who was wounded by an arrow that was thickly smeared with poison. And the, the friends brought this man to a surgeon to treat him. But the wounded man said to the surgeon, I will not let you pull this arrow out until I know whether the man who wounded me was a noble one, a Brahmin, a merchant, or a worker. I won't let you pull this arrow out until I know the name in the clan of the man who wounded me, whether he was tall or short, middle height, whether he was dark, brown, or golden skin, whether he lived in a village, town, or city. It goes on and on and on. Whether he used a longbow or a crossbow, whether the feathers were from a vulture, a crow, a hawk, a peacock, or a stork, what kind of arrow it was. Was it hoof-tipped, curved, or barbed, calf-toothed, or an oleander? He just, he's really making his point. <laughs> I want to know whether it was a bowstring, a fiber, reed, sinew, hemp, or bark. You know, he just wanted to know all these things before he would allow the surgeon to operate on him. And in the meantime, he died. <laughs> In a way, <laughs> that's what we want to do. We want to know it all or understand it all or figure it out or analyze it. Just come to some kind of resolution or meaning through our thoughts, through our knowledge. And in the meantime, <laughs> what's happening? In the meantime, <laughs> Where's the quality of our life? Somehow letting go into the present moment, free of our fixed notions and our fixed constructs about things, 
it just feels so threatening. I have people who come in to the interviews and, and, and that's exactly what people say. It's just, I sit here and I feel this restlessness and this panic and this anxiety. I don't know why. It's just so scary to let go. What is it? Why is it? It, it can even feel life-threatening as if we're going to die if we let go. And maybe in some way it is a form of a death. Maybe there is something that dies in this process. But certainly it's not how the mind imagines it, imagines it to be. The mind is going to come up with all kinds of images and ideas and constructs. And, but it certainly isn't going to be that way. A quote from Rumi, the great poet. To die in life is to become life. The wind stops skirting you and enters. All the roses suddenly are blooming in your skull. To die into life, to let go. If it was so easy, <laughs> if it was so simple. Because of the thick veil that covers our eyes, we simply don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. And more and more, I see the strength of this collective delusion. I see my own delusion, just how I don't see. I don't see what I'm doing. We are creatures of habit, and we hold on for dear life, because that's the habit. We want to be secure. We want things to be familiar. And when we're honest, and we're not too numb in ourselves, we can feel the dissatisfaction of that. We can even feel the suffering of that. And certainly we witness all around the manifestations of that delusion in the world. How that affects our entire world that we live in. But this delusion is not bad. It's not wrong. We simply don't know. We don't know what we're doing. Sometimes we do know. We know very well what we're doing. We can see ourselves caught up in habits that are painful, that are destructive to ourselves and to others. And even so, something stops us from taking the risk to do something differently. We feel caught in the strength of that ego pattern. It's as if the awareness is there and we just see ourselves acting things out. I've seen this in myself when I get angry and caught to, uh, in, a relation, in a, my, my primary relationship with wanting him to be different and I just know I'm so caught and there's nothing I can do in that moment but just to be with it. I can't, the, the pattern is so strong I can't change it in that moment. You can see this with Addictions, the power of addictions, of alcohol or drug or cigarettes, eating addictions, gambling addictions, whatever they are, something just pulls us. And even if we have some moments of awareness of knowing what we're doing, that pattern just pulls us, sucks us in. 
in, that, in those moments, the force of the habit is stronger than the wisdom that knows better. That even though there's some wisdom that knows better, it's just not strong enough to circumvent, to overcome the strength of the pattern. And we can feel the pain. We can feel the suffering of our choices. And it's very painful. I've witnessed a lot of people who are going through recovery from alcohol, and, and it's a powerful transformation to take the risk to do things differently and to try to interfere with the force of that habit that has been so deeply conditioned. So, so powerful and yet so painful. But something happens. Anazanin, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. The day came when the risk to stay closed in a tight bud was more difficult than the risk it would take to blossom. The day came when the risk to stay closed was more difficult than the risk to blossom. Something begins to turn and waking up becomes more of a priority. So if we're lucky, enough wisdom comes in and we can begin making really positive changes. And it's luck. I can't, you know, I've reflected on this so much. What is it that some people with the same, perhaps, addictions in this case, some make the shift and some don't. Just what is that? What is that force that comes through that gives rise to such good fortune and great transformation in some and not others? It seems luck. <laughs> uh, my, my, my guru in India, whenever we would have some kind of interaction with him, he, he, at the end he would always say, good luck. <laughs> Good luck. And and he lived in luck now. <laughs> which which is the truth. I mean, he didn't like the uh, name the city. There's a city in India named Lucknow. And <laughs> he just happened to live there. So so whenever we would be having these interactions with him, he would say "Good luck. Good luck." You know, because what is it? You know, we all have such good fortune that we're sitting here now with enough wisdom to be able to look at our own minds and possibly bring about some great transformation. And not only a transformation that will make a difference in our lives, but the ripples from that will go out and touch every person that we come into contact with. The ripples are profound. So as we become more in touch, as this wisdom starts to grow, we start to feel more in the present moment. We're making more contact with the actuality, with the reality of the present moment. And our sensitivity grows to that. Our patience grows. Courage grows. 
the tolerance to the pain grows. And we become more aware of the consequences of our choices, of our actions. And through that awareness, then we can begin to make choices that are actually going to bring about more happiness and bring about more peace, bring about transformation in our lives and others. And as we make these different choices, we're stepping into the unknown. We're stepping into the unfamiliar because we actually don't know what we're getting ourselves into. We can't know because it's the letting go that's actually bringing about more sensitivity. It's the letting go that's bringing about more awareness. And it's the letting go into the unknown, out of the familiar, into that place of risk. Some of you have heard this um, called the autobiography in five short chapters. I always find it delightful each time I hear it. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. <laughs> I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. <laughs> See, it's a process. <laughs> That's why we call it a journey, a path, you know. It seems to take us time. It's the learning that has to happen for us. By the way, Christopher actually added another chapter. <laughs> he said, chapter six, I walk down the same street and I cover the hole so nobody else falls in. <laughs> This is his bodhisattva spirit. <laughs> so in chapter three, this is the transformative chapter. I walk down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. But my eyes are open. I know where I am. I know where I am. Until that knowing arises, there's really not a lot we can do. Until we know where we are, then we can make a different choice. We can do something different. Last night, Christopher talked about avijja, the absence of knowing, as the first link in the 12 links of the conditioned arising. Absence of knowing 
Vija is the knowing. This is what we're practicing here, is the knowing, waking up to where we are, becoming aware, becoming awake to what's happening in ourselves and around us so that we can make different choices in our lives. We can do things differently. Awareness is simply knowing. Awareness is simply knowing. Knowing what's happening moment to moment to moment. I say to people so many times a day, it doesn't matter what's happening. <laughs> it matters whether you're aware of it or not. It doesn't matter what's happening. The experience is totally irrelevant. <laughs> Are you aware of it? Are you noticing it? Are you awake in your life? This is not an intellectual knowing. It's not even something that we have to think about. It requires no thought <laughs> to be aware. Awareness is a direct seeing, a direct contact where we just know. For example, right now, if I just ask you to wiggle your little finger, just to wiggle your little finger, do you know that you're wiggling your little finger? <laughs> it's just that, just the knowing, bringing the attention there, making contact. Didn't need to think about wiggling your little finger, I don't think. <laughs> it's not too complex of an activity, but we just know that's what's happening. Awareness is this innate quality of being. It's a gift that we all have. Awareness does not reject what it sees, and it does not cling to what it sees. But it embraces everything with an unconditional acceptance. It is pure, impartial, unconditional, like a clean, bright mirror. This is the quality of our own mind. When we're fully aware in a moment, in just one moment, we're not afraid to see. We're not afraid to feel. And we're not afraid to face our truth in that moment, whatever it is. I want to just tell you a short, well, little story about a, a man that I was having a conversation with a few months ago. This man is single in his late 30s, and he's been meditating for about 12 years. And he is a brain tumor, and he's been in remission for about three or four years. The brain tumor's been in remission for about three or four years. But he lives with this unknowing. He doesn't know what's going to happen day to day. He doesn't know what's going to happen day to day, how that, what's going to arise in that tumor. And so while I was talking to him, what he was recognizing, what he was becoming aware of in himself is how he tries to control everything in his life because he's so afraid of making a mistake that's going to affect his healing. He's so afraid of doing it wrong that nearly every moment of his existence is in, infused with this control. 
He wants to make the right decisions to make himself feel good, to make himself feel relaxed, to, to give him a sense of well-being. He questions how to be with himself in the day and where he should be in the future that would be the, most, um, the best for his healing. It's a constant worry, anxiety, confusion. And he feels the anxiety that builds from this pressure, feels the pressure building of needing to get it right. And he identifies with the thought that it's up to him. He has to do it right, because if he doesn't do it right, he's going to die. And he's really afraid of doing it wrong. I mean, what a setup. It's a really good setup. And this burden weighs on him and puts pressure on him. And he says, pointing to his head, this is pressure. This is all about pressure. So he's really, really caught up in this whole way and wanting to be free of it, wanting to be free of this angst. And of course he has a strong investment because it's life and death. It's a life and death issue. And so we talked about letting go. We talked about surrender. And what would happen if he worked with his mind and not let it race for solutions? Not let it race because he found his mind just racing through the day to the past, to the future, to the present. And he just kept sitting with it. He sat with it. And he felt that it would be really scary even to let go. It would be even scary to let go, a huge risk to let go, because he might fail. So I said to him, what you are trying to feel is relaxation, ease, a sense of well-being. Do you think the way you are going about it will give you those results? And so he just kept sitting with it. And he really took in the question. And something went deep, and he got it. Something really kind of shifted in his psyche, that the direction that he's moving in is not going to help him. And it went deep in his psyche to the point where it's almost like some screws loosened, where the, the mental constructs just got shaken up. And he got it. And we just sat there for a while in that silence, just sat there for a while in that realization, the presence of that realization, just letting that sink deeply into his being, just letting it sink, because that's where it needs to go. That's where the realizations need to go, is deep so that it permeates every cell in our being so that our whole being is embodied with that realization. And as I spoke with him over the weeks after that, something did shift. And he did feel more relaxed in himself, and he was able to surrender and trust more in the unfolding of things. And he did feel that that was beneficial for him and the very healing that he was hoping for. 
when we let go, it's still scary. <laughs> it doesn't mean that the fear just instantly dissolves. It's still scary to take those steps, but we come face to face with the uncontrollability. We come face to face with our own helplessness. And something is much more true, so something shifts. And in that facing that helplessness, we get out of the way somewhat. We stop giving ourselves such a hard time and making such demands and expectations on ourselves and what the outcome should be. And the fear that we feel is not so bound up in the pressure that we put on ourselves. And the fear can start to move. It can start to release, start to be free in ourselves because we're not adding more on top of it. This is Rumi again. He says, failure is the key to the kingdom within. Your prayer should be, break the legs of what I want to happen. <laughs> Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. <laughs> it's spring. I finally have no will. <laughs> that quality of letting go, that firmness of letting go. For my friend, of course, it was life and death. And for the rest of us, we're not in conditions that have that level of urgency to us. For the most of us, we're not. Now, there are some here who do have that level of urgency. But for most of us, we don't. And yet, the same way, so often our minds race frantically, trying to figure it out, trying to get solutions, trying to, to find some way to, to, to make life work in a way that would be satisfying for us. But we're not fully here. We get caught, we get caught, we get lost in that whole world of our mind. But what happens if we stop just for a moment, just stop right in the midst of it and feel the uncontrollability, feel our helplessness, sink into the present moment of that with all that it is offering, sink like throwing a stone into a pond, like the stone sinks to the bottom of the pond. There's the potential in our own mind for that. When we finally land in the present moment, we can sink deeply into our awake consciousness <coughs> until that sense of I or that sense of me dissolves. And we can rest in that place of stopping, where nothing is impacting or imposing itself in that moment. Yet when we sink into that place, there is still the knowing. There is still the knowing where I am. I still know that I am awake. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is what it is. 
It just is what it is. And then the old patterns still arise, but there is a knowing that wasn't there before. As I sink deeper and deeper into, the, into my being, into that awake consciousness, there is a knowing that is new, that is fresh. A knowing that won't allow me to keep repeating the same old habits again and again. And in this space of connection, in this space of wholeness, when the mind is clear of its usual clutter, <laughs> there's the possibility for insight to arise, to see things so clearly and so freshly in a way that allows for deep transformation. As our aversion to the changing conditions of life begins to soften, and our sense of separation starts to dissolve, we can notice how our heart feels. And it may just be a moment, it may be a few moments, and then the old patterns come back, and then a few more minutes, or moments when the separation seems to have dissolved. And there's an open-hearted connection we find out that even in the face of pain, there is a kind of contentment. There's a kind of ease, a kind of even joy sometimes. And the movement of pure attention into that place of pain is a movement of compassion. And with this movement, this movement of compassion, our heart opens. And rather than feeling averse to the pain, like we need to get rid of that pain, there is actually a heartfelt wish to alleviate the pain, to do what we can to act in a way to help that pain go away, whether it's our pain in our own heart or something we see in another's. That movement of love, that movement of pure attention is a movement to want to help, to be generous, to be kind, to be serving. Tulka Ugin, another great Tibetan master, says, true compassion is like the summer's warmth which melts the ice. We can move directly toward what's happening. We can move into what's happening. We don't have to be repelled. We don't have to escape or run away. But we can go right into the anxiety, the helplessness, the grief, the sorrow, without the fear of it, without the anger towards it, without even sorrow towards what we see or self-pity towards what we see. And when we respond to situations in that way, both within ourselves and towards others, when we respond compassionately, in those moments we know that our happiness and our equanimity of mind is not dependent on whether the situation actually changes. There's no dependency on that situation changing because we are embracing the situation. We are embracing the moment just as it is. 
we have in those moments the capacity in our own hearts, in our own minds, to be with the reality as it is. So here we are in the present moment. Here we are together. And the experience of this is unique for each person. But for each person, it's true. It's real. It's not imaginary. It's not made up by the mind. We are here in the way that we are, whether we feel ease, happiness, whether we feel dull, anxious, depressed. That's your truth. Can you allow it? And when you allow it, can you feel the vitality of that wakeful attention, of that loving attention in that moment? Can we stay awake? Let's sit quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.